0: edition of the Golden Age of Islam. and Today we're going to look at a subject that challenges people today just as it has since the very beginning and that is the relationship of Arabness and Islam. When you think of the origins of Islam of course the Arab people are the first ethnicity that you think of. Even today, when people talk of the Arab world and the Muslim world, there tends to be a lot of overlap. But just how strong is this identification, this association? How far does it go back? Is Islam the religion of the Arabs? Is Islamic culture and civilization a byproduct of Arab culture? Well, these are questions that people were debating even in the first several centuries of Islam, and this is going to be our subject today, which is the first of several episodes we're going to be doing on the subject of ethnicity in the Islamic empire and the tensions between ethnic groups. Today we're going to ask the question, what is the relationship of the Arab identity and the Muslim identity? So please, stay with us. Okay, welcome back. Before we go any further today, I would like to announce that we're very happy. Uh, we've got a Facebook page up. It's entitled The Golden Age of Islam. Uh, and on that Facebook page, I'll be posting a lot of things that don't make it into these podcasts because we have a lot of information that doesn't make it in. Uh, we have some quotes from interesting people. Uh, sources. We'll be talking a little bit about some of the important innovations and in developments of the Muslims, and pointing you some resources that you can have. And it's also a place where you can give your comments, and we will definitely appreciate those. So please check out our Facebook page. We're not selling anything, but we appreciate your likes. Again, that's The Golden Age of Islam on Facebook. Okay, so let's move on. Well, today's subject... The relationship between the Arab cultural identity and the Muslim identity is one that has been subject to a lot of misunderstanding and misinterpretation over the years. I mean, if we went back a couple of centuries to the period of Orientalism, when Westerners were first really beginning to study the Muslim world, this association was assumed to be natural. It was assumed that the Arab identity was something that had existed from the beginning of time, and that Islam was formed as a particularly Arab version of monotheism, the particular religion of the Arabs. But today that concept has been challenged, as really have most concepts of very simplified, uh, reductionist views of ethnic groups. And so we want to look at that relationship today and and see what the reality is and what were the different perceptions at the time. So for today's episode, I have to first acknowledge a tremendous uh, debt to the author Peter Webb of Leiden University, who is really the pioneer in this subject, and a lot of what we're going to be discussing today comes from his recent book, which is called Imagining the Arabs, which is, a, first of all, it's just a fabulous book, a fascinating read that discusses this subject in great detail, and it's highly, highly recommended. It's a very accessible book, uh, and it's very, very timely. And so. Pretty much everything we're going to discuss today, uh, we can cite uh, Dr. Webb as a a footnote to that. He's certainly uh, the first item on the bibliography for this lesson. So if you're interested in this, I highly recommend both his book and he has a lot of stuff on the Internet, a lot of interviews that are fascinating. Now the big question that Dr. Webb is trying to answer is, when did the Arabs begin to think of themselves as, quote, the Arabs? versus members of a certain tribe or something else. And he looks at a lot of documents that were written in the pre-Islamic period in the early Islamic period, and he finds no evidence that the pre-Islamic inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula called themselves, quote, Arabs. Now this term existed for uh, quite a long time. It seems to be first used by the ancient Assyrians, and it always referred to nomads. And it was probably related to their word for locusts. So obviously not something that is a positive. You're talking about a pest, an annoyance. And that's what they meant, because when they were referring to the nomads of the desert, they were talking about pests on the borders of their empire peoples they had to deal with. Now, from there, this term made its way into a lot of languages, with the same basic connotation of this idea of nomadic people, Uh, and even made its way into Greek, which is where we get the word Arabia, which comes from the Greek. Now, eventually, this word is going to enter the Arabic language to mean people who move. For example, that same root, araba, is where we get the word for an automobile in a lot of Arabic dialects, the idea of moving around. But the point is, it always seems to have been used to refer to the outsiders, people outside your tribe, your city, whatever. You were talking about the people who were moving around in the desert and who were potentially a threat to you. Now, Peter Webb makes an analogy to the way that this term came about as the same way that the Europeans called the native inhabitants of America, quote, Indians, when, I mean, obviously the tribes of the Native Americans did not call themselves Indians, and they did not think of themselves as part of one Indian people, you know, stretching from uh, the Pacific Northwest all the way down to the Seminoles in Florida. Okay, so it was definitely something that was used to describe other people, people who were different than you. Now, part of the problem with doing any sort of research and drawing any sort of conclusions on this subject is that when European scholars really started exploring the history of the Middle East, this was during the time of nationalism and the idea of the, the nation-state and the national people. This is an idea that... Uh, theorists like Henry Kissinger were so in love with, the idea that once nationalism developed, the idea that the French people were one people distinct from the Germans and the British and, you know, you could trace their history all the way back into ancient times, that this was what motivated people. People were much more motivated to go fight for, say, the French nation or the German nation than they were to fight for you know, just some prince or some baron here or there. And it's you know, a very uh, powerful idea, and if you've studied European history, you know that the idea of the rise of the nation-state is you know, one of the big concepts that supposedly is a cause for the dominance of Europe. Well, of course, if you ever have a paradigm of looking at the world, you tend to apply that to everyone. You know, as they say, if you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And so, when they were looking at the Arab peoples, the Asian peoples, and African peoples, they tended to apply the same idea themselves, that these were nations, uh, of of groups of people who existed all the way back into time immemorial. So, they would tend to look at the, quote, Arabs as an ancient people who had a shared identity, shared history, shared values, and culture that went way back into prehistory. Now, by the 20th century, of course, these ideas were being questioned, and today they seem, you know, basically outright crazy to say something like that. But, you know, the power of nationalism, of group pride and cohesion, uh, these were well known to medieval Muslims as well. And so what the British or French thinkers were doing in the 1700s, you know, propounding this idea of an eternal French nation that were all joined by blood, I mean, that's what people in the Abbasid Empire were doing as well, uh, trying to promote the cohesion of their group particularly the ruling elite. And so, whether a collective Arab identity existed before Islam, and we're pretty much saying here that it didn't, there's absolutely no evidence of that, uh, the rulers of the early Muslim dynasties had plenty of incentive to claim that one did. Okay, so, If we're saying that the inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula didn't call themselves Arabs initially, then the question is, well, what did they call themselves? Well, as we've discussed many times, the society in in that area at that time was based on tribes. And of course, tribes are basically large extended families. They're joined by blood. And how do you determine who's in the tribe? Well, it's how far up your chain of ancestors that you go. And so people would be known by their tribe the, the Kinda, the Tamim, the Kelbi, these great powerful tribes of uh, Arabia. But you could go back even further to find uh, common origins between groups of tribes, particularly if, a, let's say, a group of tribes were to form a confederation and work together, Well, they could find an ancestor they had in common, different from their enemy. Well, traditionally, in Arab lineage, the uh, origins of these people were the two ancestors, who were probably legendary figures, Qahtan and Adnan. Uh, the first one, Qahtan, is said to be the father of the tribes of southern Arabia, and Adnan, the ancestor of the tribes of the north. So basically, this is about as far back as anyone would trace their lineage. And so this is what you would say if you wanted to m- mean everybody, like the whole world. You would say like the sons of Adnan, and that meant like everybody. And there are references to this in pre-Islamic poetry, when they talk about you know everybody joining together, you know, all the sons of Adnan. That's about as far back as they went. No one ever said all the Arabs. Okay, now later on, when we get to the Muslim period, these genealogies are going to be extensively reworked, and they'll go all the way back to Adam, they'll include all the biblical prophets, but at no point were there reference to anyone saying, you know, quote, we Arabs. Now this is not to say that there was not pride in group identity. Of course there were. I mean, these people were extremely proud, uh, and most of the poetry they wrote was boasting of their tribe and trashing the other tribes. But the pride was in the tribe, or the subclan. right? Our tribe has the best horsemen, the bravest warriors, the purest women, and so forth. Never we Arabs are so great. Now, when you think about it, this just makes common sense. I mean, where does any identity come from? Well, you never have an us unless you have a them, right? And whenever we see people boasting about their particular group, it's always in comparison to some other group, right? I mean, when do we ever think about we Earthlings, except when we're watching a movie and the aliens come from space, and now, okay, all we Earthlings have to get together. But, we, you know, we, we don't think like this until there's some reason for us to imagine all of our people together against some outside group. Well, if we're looking at pre-Islamic Arabia, we know this was a time when tribes fought each other constantly, Uh, so there really isn't any logical reason why you would want to think of all these people that you're fighting against as being part of one Arab nation. It just doesn't make any sense. Okay, so if we're saying they didn't use this term, the question is, where did it come from? Where did we get this word "Arabi," which means Arabic? Well, the first place we see it used a lot, and of course, this is gonna be very important, is in the Quran. The Quran uses the term Arabi 11 times, but whenever it does, it specifically refers to language, and it's talking about the language of the Quran, saying this is an Arabi Quran, which we translate in English as, a, as an Arabic Quran. Now, a lot of uh, linguists today argue about what this means, and what the origin of this term means, but it seems to be that the meaning of the word Arabi, Arabic in this sense, means clear, understandable. And the root verb, which if you know from Arabic, is very important to have the root verb, the root verb means to express something, and so something that is Arabi means it's being expressed well. And so whenever this is used, it means like a clear Quran, in a clear tongue, a well-expressed um, uh Quran. And we know that this is very important, because we talked way, way back in the early episodes about how the Quran is different from other scriptures, in that Muslims believe that the the Christian and Jewish scriptures have been corrupted, and they had plenty of reason to believe this, because in the early centuries of Christianity, there was all sorts of debate about what were the actual scriptures, which... which, uh, Um, particular manuscripts were correct, and so forth, and that the idea that the Quran was revealed word for word by God, and it was preserved perfectly. So this idea of an Arabic Quran, meaning a perfectly expressed and enunciated Quran, makes sense, and that is in, in the context of all the verses that use that. That makes sense there, and that certainly makes more sense than saying it's revealed in the Arabic language, because the concept of the Arabic language didn't exist. I mean, we know there were a lot of different dialects in the Arabian Peninsula being used by different peoples. We can trace those and see their com- common origins. So, I mean, this would be like, you know, someone saying it's it's revealed in the English language if you were going back to pre-Roman England. They just didn't have a concept of that. Okay, so additionally, in the few places where the Quran does refer to the quote Arabs as a people, it's always in the same sense that the Assyrians and everyone else was using it, in a negative sense meaning the nomads, and it's usually contrasting the believers and the nomads. Now this makes sense, because remember, the Quran was revealed over 22 years to the Prophet. Uh, during a time when he's bringing the message and trying to convert... Um, the people in his area. And for most of that time, uh, these Bedouin were the enemy. These were the people you had to convince. So even at the beginning, the references to the Arabs, meaning these Bedouin nomads, is meant in sort of a negative sense. Now, Professor Webb uh, goes so far as to claim that these two words Arabi, meaning clear language, and Arab, as nomads, come from different sources, from different roots. Now, that's plausible, um, because if you're familiar with Arabic, you know that the same combination of letters can come from different roots. And if you look in the dictionary, for example, you can look up a root, and you'll see a one and a two with the same root, meaning it has two different meanings which means it probably came from two different origins. So this is certainly plausible to say um, that these two different words, Arabic meaning clear speech and Arab meaning nomadic people, were two distinct words uh, that would eventually become merged. But whether that's true or not, there definitely seems to be different meanings to these terms. The usage definitely supports the idea that there were two different concepts. Well, if you've been listening to this podcast at all, uh, and I hope you have, you know that one of the points that we just love to hammer on over and over again is the importance of the Arabic language in Islam. And I would claim to you right here that no other religion is so closely tied to a specific language then Islam is to Arabic. And yes, I know about Hebrew, about Pali, about Latin, and so forth, I'm taking those into consideration, but as we've discussed, the the idea that the Quran is the words of God exactly as they sounded to Muhammad, down to the pauses and the pronunciation of specific letters, okay, it's a really strong correlation. And, in fact, as most Muslims will tell you, the Qur'an is a linguistic miracle, so that Arabic speech is very important. Well, one of the effects that this has is that the dialect of Mecca, which, of course, is where the Prophet Muhammad is from, ends up becoming the standard Arabic. Okay, we know before this there were a lot of different dialects out there which could be called part of the Proto-Arabic family, but the emphasis in the Quran on this being a pure, verbatim, word-for-word revelation means that the particular dialect that it's revealed in is going to become very important okay and so this would become the the arabs really greatest claim to superiority that we speak the language of the quran we know what it actually means it's revealed in our language and if you're a persian you're looking at a foreign language and since the quran is the basis of our religion our society and our law And during the Umayyad period this becomes the official language of everything, of the bureaucracy, of the law, of everything, so therefore if you're speaking the dialect from which all this is based, well this gives you a claim to being an expert, to having the pure language. Okay, so at this point everybody wants to rush and show that I speak the correct Arabic too. Now, Today, if you were to go to the internet and look up what the word Arab means, okay, what does it mean to be an Arab, pretty much every definition that you're going to find, I've never seen one that doesn't, begins with the point that an Arab is someone who speaks Arabic as their native language. And this is the definition that's being uh, developed as the Quran is being revealed, it's people who speak this as their native language. Now, so if we have these two different senses of the word, Arab, which may or may not be uh, from two different origins, it's unclear at which point they merge, but they definitely do today. Today. Today we would say an Arab is someone who speaks Arabic and whose origins are in the um, Arabian Peninsula of the Bedouin and so forth. So at some point these two are going to come together. Now for one thing, if you're familiar with the way the Arabic language works uh, and the way the morphology works, Uh, Two words that share the same three-letter root as these do are naturally going to come to overlap, even if they did come from different origins, and this happens to a lot of roots. But there were definitely incentives, as we're going to see later on, to merge these two things together, that the people who speak the pure Arabic and the people who live the pure Bedouin life uh, have a special status, and that's something we're going to look at as we go along. So as we said, language is one important reason for the development of an Arab identity. The conquests were another, and we've talked about the uh, early Islamic conquests and how fast these were. Now, of course, the main forces of the conquerors, it were mainly people coming from the Arabian Peninsula. But they proceeded to conquer from Persia all the way to Tunisia in a rapid fashion. Now, as we've discussed, part of the success of these conquests is that the Muslims did not radically change the societies they conquered, at least not by force. Remember, conversion was a slow process, Uh, They didn't really force conversion or even encourage it, but they were more interested in moving on to the next conquest, which made sense. I mean, if they were completely dismantling the societies they took over, it would have taken a long time to stretch from one part of the world to another. They were basically interested in knocking off the government, replacing that, but they largely kept the communities that were there intact. Well, This is very important because what we're going to have is a fairly small group, and the Muslim armies were exceptionally small for the size of their conquests, and they're going to be spread out hundreds or thousands of miles away from home, and they're going to be garrisoning a strange population. Now, of course, the core of their identity is Islam. That's why they were there. That's why they were conquering. But they're going to share a lot of things in common. For one thing, they're going to speak Arabic, or some dialect of Arabic, so which they can uh, speak to each other, which is going to be very different from the local population, which should be Coptic in Egypt, or Persian in Iran and Iraq, and they're going to sound very different. Well, they already had huge motivations to standardize the language, you know, so they could work together. Uh, in the Umayyad period, Arabic becomes the official language. So, yes, being a Muslim sets you apart from the conquered population, but so did your Arabic language. And so these two things are starting to go together. Now, for most modern scholars who look at this, this is the point that the Arabic identity emerges. I mean, basically, if you're a foreign soldier, um, you know, of Arabian origin and now you're assigned to a garrison say in Tunisia or Spain or Persia and you're living with other Arabic speakers who come from the same region you start to distinguish yourself from the local population. Well that makes sense, but how does this Arabic identity become dominant? How does it become the premier uh, prestigious identity in this empire? Well when we talked about the early conquests we mentioned the fact that the Khalif Umar Uh, had a policy of establishing separate cities for military garrisons. He was very concerned, uh, first of all, about his troops mixing with the local population, and he was very concerned about oppressing the local population. Uh, He didn't want to spark resistance, and we we have the story of uh, the, the treaties that were established when they took over Jerusalem and so forth, and so... Basically, what Omar began was this idea of establishing separate cities. They were really like military garrisons uh, for the conquerors. Now, many of these would develop into the great cities of the Middle East or would merge into them. You know, what is now today Cairo in Egypt, the city of Kufa in Iraq, Kairouan in Tunisia, Uh, these were all established as separate garrisons for the conquerors. In Baghdad, of course, was established by a later dynasty, but it was also a planned city, which was close to the old Persian capital, but was separate from it. Now, of course, we've talked a lot about tolerance in this early Muslim empire, and that's true, and uh, how the Muslims were mostly welcomed by the local populations. And so, by medieval standards, uh, they were extremely tolerant. But, I mean, tolerant doesn't mean it was pure equality in all, you know, rainbows and happiness, okay? It doesn't mean everybody is living exactly the same. The Muslims were still the conquerors. They replaced the local governments. Uh, They took the lead positions in the new governments, and particularly in the military, And they definitely saw themselves as superior. And in fact, throughout the first two centuries of Islam, just being one of these conquerors, you got a special stipend from the government. You got money for being that. So you're definitely being set as a class apart. Well, of course, this distinction is basically a distinction between Muslim and non-Muslim. Uh, The eminent historian Fred Donner, who's from the University of Chicago, uh, he describes this as when things shifted from an identity of being believers, you know, Munin, to specifically being Muslims, Uh, because we've talked earlier about how much Muhammad did not see himself as bringing a new religion but his was a call to all the believers and how he sent messages out to the early Christian communities as well. Um, the early conquests were dedicated to replacing paganism with monotheism. Okay. So that was a movement of believers, of those who submit to God. But by this point, if you're say in a garrison in Egypt surrounded by Coptic Christians, you begin to see a distinction between you and them. I mean, they are people of the book, they are fellow believers, but we are slightly different. We are Muslims. We follow the final revelation uh, of the prophet Muhammad, and uh, they don't. We follow this Arabic Quran, and they don't. So this is where a distinct identity of Muslim versus just strictly a believer uh, emerges. Well, that's all very interesting, but we still don't have, quote, Arabs, and that's our topic today, so how do we get there? Well, identities change over time, and as we said, you know, an identity has to distinguish us from them. And as populations change, that distinction starts to go away. So, first off, the identity of being a believer in... Mecca, for example, that sets you apart from the pagans. But now, as we've said, being a conqueror in the garrison in one of these conquered territories, you have to distinguish yourself from the local population. So now you're a Muslim versus a Christian, say. Well, the local populations do begin to convert. We said it's a slow process. It's not a forced process, but it definitely occurs. This is why 90% of the population in Egypt today is Muslim. So this distinction of being a Muslim now sort of goes away because slowly, so is the local population. They're converting as well. So what sets you apart? Well, now, if you're an Arabic-speaking Muslim from Mecca in a garrison in Egypt, and you're surrounded by other Muslims who are formerly Christian Egyptians, well, what distinguishes you from them? Well, it's where you come from, your origins, and your original language. And it's at this point that uh, an important distinction begins to develop in this specific identity. The Quran promises reward for those who have, quote, migrated for the sake of God. Now, the word for migration is hijrah, and this, of course, refers to the most famous hijrah of all. This is the hijrah of the prophet and his companions from Mecca to Medina. This is when the Islamic calendar starts. But we also have these thousands of early Muslims who have migrated to the conquered territories, and they claim this is their identity. So moving from, let's say, Medina or Mecca to a garrison in Egypt, Iraq, or Persia is also seen as an act of migration for the sake of God that will be rewarded. So these people begin referring to themselves as muhajirun which means migrants. It comes from the same root as hijra. And this distinguishes you from the local people who have converted, and they are known as Mawali. And so you can see how this distinction develops based on how the local population is changing. First off, just being a believer is enough to set you apart. Then being a Muslim is enough to set you apart. Well, as the local population converts to Islam, now what's the distinction? Well, we are the people who migrated from the Arabian Peninsula and brought you the Word of God, who helped you convert. So that sets you apart. This identity is so prevalent that this word "muhajirun." Uh, enters the Greek language and enters the Persian language and that's the word they use to refer to Muslims. Okay, well that's great. Now we have a distinction. But after a few generations pass, okay, your kids, they're no longer muhajirun. Uh, They were born in Kufa or they were born in Egypt. And the kids of the Mawali, they're no longer new converts. Their families have been Muslim for a few generations as well. And also, as the cities begin to spread, the borders between these separate Muslim garrison towns and all the towns that grow up around them disappear. They basically merge in, and this is how a city like Cairo develops out of several separate separate garrisons that were there. So at this point, the, the muhajirun name doesn't really mean anything. Okay, now, this doesn't mean that we're all equal, of course. Now, as you know, people everywhere always want to separate themselves. You know, what separates me from you? What makes me better than you? Well, what is it is the origins. Okay, I didn't emigrate here from Mecca. Maybe my father didn't emigrate here from Mecca. But my family has its origins in Mecca. In your Persian family, they have origins in Zoroastrian uh, religion. Okay, so now we've got two things separating the populations, language and lineage. By now, Arabic is the official language of the empire, but you guys are still struggling to learn it. You know, your native language is Persian, and you learn this as a second language. My people are the native speakers. We go back centuries. And so this appears to be the first basis of the differentiation between the Arabs and the local people. And we can see when the first dictionaries are produced, and this is in the Umayyad era, because now Arabic's the standard language, uh, they begin to distinguish between two groups of people, the Arab and the Ajam, And Ajum is a term for, initially means non-Arabic speaker. It's going to become a generic term for foreigner, and it's eventually going to become an umbrella term, mostly for Persians. When people talk about Ajami, they mean Persians. But it starts out as a distinction between uh, native Arabic speakers and speakers of something else. To the extent the the Arabs are said to speak Fusha, which is the correct clear language. And if you've studied Arabic, you know al is the name for classical Arabic, but it means it means the, the pure, correct, clear language. And that word ajum originally meant incomprehensible or unclear. Uh, and this is similar to the way the Greeks called other people's um, barbar, which we get barbarian or berber, which was literally meant the sound of someone like babbling because you couldn't understand them. Okay, so now we have a distinction. We can separate ourselves from the local population in the idea that we are native speakers of Arabic. But, like every distinction we've seen so far in this episode, it goes away after time. I mean, populations are assimilating, so what set you apart doesn't hold up any longer. So, by now, Muslims from any part of the world can be speaking correct language. So we've talked about people, particularly of Persian origin or Central Asian origin, who become leading scholars of Arabic. And we have even talked about some scholars who become so immersed in Arabic that they forget their native Persian. And so this distinction isn't going to hold up for very long. So during the 700s and during the 800s, Uh, the establishment of the Abbasid Caliphate is happening there, and still, how do they distinguish people? This is when we see that lineage becomes the defining factor. Now, this is a very safe method because it's rooted in the past. So, if we separate people based on language... Well, a Persian can always go out and learn Arabic, and they do, and they they can become experts in it, and they can write grammars in it. Okay, So they they can master that. Um, They can rise up the religious hierarchy by study. But you can't go back in time and un-Persianize yourself. You can't go make your great-grandfather not a Zoroastrian and make him one of the original converts in Mecca. Now, we've seen over the course of this series how important lineage continues to be in Islam. Now, despite the sense of equality and despite the teachings of equality and the idea that a person's worth is based on their actions, on their religious devotion, uh, lineage continues to be deeply ingrained. It was deeply ingrained in Arabian society, right? Everything was organized by tribe, and tribe is family, families by blood. And even as we become an empire, uh, this idea of lineage continues to be important, probably more so than you would expect, Now, for the Shia, there's no question. Of course, that's how they became Shia. The Shia were the people who believed that leadership should be passed down, the direct male lineage from the prophet, period. So, obviously, they are very connected to lineage. For Sunnis, it's a bit trickier, because their whole doctrine, the way they separate themselves from Shia, is by rejecting this idea of a spiritual lineage. Remember, the basic belief of the Sunni, which is how they separate themselves out from the Shia, is that revelation ends with the Prophet, and all we can do is study it. And therefore, religious leaders are the most studied people. They're not people who have been given a special gift. They're the people who have studied the Hadith, have studied the Quran, and studied Islamic law. Despite that, though, lineage continues to be important. Uh, leadership continues to remain in the Prophet's tribe of Quraysh. And when the Abbasids stage their revo- uh, revolution, it's ostensibly, at least, to bring leadership back closer to the line of the Prophet. Remember, they trace themselves to an uncle of the Prophet. And that's their, at least, a the justification they use for overthrowing the Umayyads. And then we see in teaching, The lineage of teachers is very important. If you want to teach in the Muslim world, uh, your pedigree is based on who your teachers were. When we're establishing Hadith, there's the importance of the Isnad, the chains of transmitters. Whom did you get this from? And so forth. And so um, this lineage becomes very important, even though doctrinally you would think it shouldn't be. Okay. Now, as we've said earlier, Islam, particularly in the early centuries, it's a religion, it's a state, and it's a culture. And this is definitely in the culture section. The idea that lineage, which establishes who you are, uh, comes to us from the Bedouin tradition, but it continues to be important. So, if lineage continues to be important, what's the best lineage you can have? Well, obviously, if you can trace your lineage all the way back to the prophet, that's great. That's the best. And that continues to be the same way today. Uh, People who can trace their lineage back to the prophet do. Um, For example, the kings of Jordan in Morocco, they make this a big point of their legitimacy. Uh, In Iran, if you have a lineage back to the prophet, you get to wear a black turban, which sets you apart. Uh, So it's important. But by this time, of course, in the empire, most Muslims don't have a lineage that goes directly back to the prophet. But if you can go back to the tribe of the prophet, that's good too. I mean, that's good enough for the Umayyads. That's good enough for uh, the Abbasids. But now we're talking about what is basically a worldwide empire stretching from Spain to India. And we still have this ruling elite, this garrisoning force. Now, most of them do not have a lineage that goes back to the Quraysh. Okay, so now you have to cast the net even wider. And so we're seeing by the second century of Islam that having a lineage that goes back anywhere in the Arabian Peninsula becomes significant that sets you apart from the others. It's kind of like, you know, coming over on the Mayflower. You know, my ancestors were in the first settlers at Plymouth Plantation or Jamestown, right? That sets you apart. Okay, so historians have actually traced this process of lineage creation through the first centuries of Islam. And they can do this because we have documents that uh, still exist like court cases, uh, particularly poetry, people brag about their lineage in poetry, and they can see what claims people were making in, say, the first 50 years of Islam with what was being said 200, 300 years later. And when they look at all these documents, a couple of things jump out at us. Uh, The first is that the further on we go in history, I mean, the, the later we get into the history of Islam, the further back lineages go. Okay, and we said originally people at, at most were tracing their lineage back a few generations. If they wanted to get really, really uh, bold, they'd go back to Adnan, the um, supposed ancestor of northern Arabs. But that's about it. By the time we get to the third century of Islam, people can cite lineages that go all the way back to the Quranic and Biblical prophets. Uh, I mean, they go all the way back to Adam, but they they get in um, prophets from the Bible, and of course, right through uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And we don't see that happening before. Okay, now, Although genealogy today is associated with Arab culture, most historians find little evidence that it was big in pre-Islamic Islam. At least it didn't go that far back in the family tree. Uh, for example, Ibn Kutaiba, who he, he wrote of the traditional sciences of the Arabs. Uh, and he wrote this during the Abbasid period, but he wanted to show that the Arabs had developed certain sciences in the pre-Islamic period. He does not mention this as one of them. Okay. Now, what we found is to, to the extent that lineages were mentioned before Islam, the furthest back they go to uh, that we can find any evidence of was an ancestor called Ma'id, who is seen as... He's a descendant of Adnan, and he's seen as the ancestor of several northern tribes. The point is, this is many, many levels below what the Islamic... Lineages are going to include. They're going to go way beyond that. And we actually have some court cases, particularly during the Umayyad period, um, when stipends were being paid to people based on their lineage, of people claiming to have a lineage, and people disputing this. So we can see these court cases, particularly from uh, like Egypt, for example, where you had uh, certain groups claiming they had a lineage back to the prophet, and this being disputed by others. And looking at these, they couldn't really um, carry that lineage any further than back to Ma'ed. By the time we get to the Abbasids, people have lineages going all the way back to Adam. Okay, now, as we've discussed many times, during the early centuries of Islam, there was a huge volume of scholarship being produced in, in all categories, but things like history, things like philology and grammar and genealogy were being written. And amongst these, one of the big genres that developed, and is still a big genre to this day, is writing biographies of the prophet, and also of his companions. And this continues to be a a big genre. Even in Saudi Arabia, there's an annual prize given to the best biography of the prophet produced that year. This continues to go on. So obviously, a big part of these biographies are the genealogies. So this is one reason that scholars in the first three centuries of Islam are going to be tracing genealogies further back than they ever were before. Another reason uh, that they do this is because grammar texts, which are being produced at this time, which are very important for studying the Quran, remember we have to study the Quran in its original Arabic, exactly word for word the way it's produced, So we need to know what the grammar means. We need to know the origins of specific words so we can determine exactly what the nuance of those words are. Well, they trace the origins of Arabic words. Where did this word come from? And so by the 800s, these basic lineages of words are also becoming very important. Okay, so as all these sciences are being developed, at the same time, Uh, we have scholars who are citing uh, Hadith of the Prophet which talk about the superiority of the Arab peoples and they talk about the importance of Arab origins. Now, as we discussed earlier in the episode on Hadith, uh, none of the early Hadith collectors accepted more than 2% of existing Hadith as legitimate. Most of them were much, much less than 1%. And most of these hadith about the the excellence or superiority of the Arabs are not among the ones that are accepted in the most uh, popular and most accepted uh, collections. In fact, these hadith, when we look at them, seem to be among the sketchiest. Uh, For example, one specific example is a report in the early 700s about the origins of the Arabs, and this is cited by Ibn Qutaybah, he cites it coming from a a local source, just a local person. A century later, that same report talking about the origins of the Arabs had morphed into a hadith of the Prophet, which is not the way it was when Ibn Qutaybah cites it. Uh, So the idea of fabricated hadith, these ones that talk about the superiority of the Arabs, are definitely uh, among them. Well, as these histories are being written and these genealogies are being written uh, about 200 years after the prophet, we have the first claim that the all the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. And you may have even heard this one before. It's actually quite common. Now, in the Bible, Ishmael is basically abandoned in the desert, and that's about all we hear about him. But in Muslim tradition, um, this relationship becomes much more benevolent. Uh, It's said that Abraham and Ishmael together built the Kaaba in Mecca, and it was originally dedicated to the, the worship of the one God, the God of Abraham, and that after Ishmael is basically left in the desert in Mecca, Abraham goes back to visit him often. The two of them bring monotheism to Arabia. Uh, Ishmael becomes a great prophet, and, of course, it's believed that it was Ishmael that Abraham offered up as a sacrifice, not his son Isaac, uh, the way that the Hebrew Bible records it. Now, beyond this, in tradition, Ishmael then becomes said to be the first Arabic speaker. And even in the tradition, it's said that he first spoke Hebrew, which would have made sense. I mean, he was the the son of a Hebrew. Um, But when he came to Mecca, that's when he became an Arabic speaker. And since then, every Arabic speaker is descended from him. It's even said uh, that Ishmael was the first horseman. the Arabs were very proud of their horsemanship, and even today they are. The finest horses in the world are Arabians. And where did Arabian horses come from? Well, it's said that God produced a hundred horses miraculously out of the sea and gave them to Ishmael, and he became the father of horsemanship. Okay, so you can see this lineage being developed here, tying it into the biblical Quranic story. So this is taking the lineage further back uh, than it ever was. Now, interestingly, at this time, the southern Arabs, which are basically people from Yemen today, were excluded from the lineage. Remember, we had Khatan and Adnan, and these were seen as two separate people. And this was because the Central Arabian Bedouin, for the most part, were um, against the settled kingdoms of Yemen. But this begins to change as well, and so one of the uh, first, and still to this day, most authoritative and most accepted biographies of the prophet was written by Ibn Ishaq in the 700s. Even at that time, uh, Ibn Ishaq separates two lineages out. There's the lineage from Ishmael and the lineage from Khartan. Khartan is said to be separate. So this idea of northern-southern Arabs still very distinct. But as time goes on, even during the early Umayyad period, uh, Yemenis become very important in the garrisons. They become very important in the Muslim army, and they begin to hold important positions. Uh, and they'll actually hold important positions all the way into Spain, which is pretty far from Yemen. So at this point, the genealogy is rewritten to make Kahtan actually an older figure than Ishmael. And in the tradition, he becomes one of the people at the Tower of Babel. Now, of course, the Tower of Babel is one of the earliest stories in the Bible, and it's even included in what people call the, the mythical stories of the Bible, which have no real historical or archeological evidence. This story in the Bible is in very early in Genesis, and it's right after the flood of Noah, and this is where people create this tower that's stretching up to God, And God, at this point, creates the different languages of the world so people can't understand each other, and scatters them in all different directions. Well, now the tradition says that Kahtan becomes the first Arabic speaker. He's at the Tower of Babel, and when God creates all these different languages, he creates Arabic as one of these originals, and Kahtan is the Arabic speaker. He takes Arabic down into the Arabian Peninsula. Okay, so now we've got the lineage of the Arabs going really all the way back to the time right after Noah, and Arabic is this language created by God, and of course it's going to develop that amongst these languages that God creates, you know, Arabic is the best one. Now even further, this weaving of Arabic lineages in with uh, the Quran and the Bible uh, goes even further. So, four of the Qur'anic prophets are said to be of Arab origin. Now, of course, one of them is Muhammad. Um, Two of the important prophets are Hud and Salah, who do not exist in the Bible. Now, they are associated with characters mentioned in the Bible, but they do not appear as prophets in the Bible. Uh, Hud and Salah are said to have brought the Word of God to two peoples, two meaning tribal groups, in southern Arabia, and these are Ad and Thamud, and they are generally believed to have rejected the message, and that these peoples were um, eliminated, wiped out. And so these, of course, are uh, Arab prophets, because they're preaching a message in southern Arabia. Now, they become very important, and the importance of, of Hud in particular, uh, he's described in the Quran as bringing the message of monotheism to southern Arabia, and of course it being rejected by certain peoples there, but then this leads to the assumption of, well, if those specific groups rejected it, then maybe everyone else didn't, and this is where we get the idea that the Yemenis, who originally just a generation before were outside the lineage they were a separate lineage from the the ishmaelites well now they are seen as being monotheists who were converted by Hud and and also by the other um prophet salah and this is very much a, it's an interpretation i mean this is not what the quran actually says but this is something you could read into it but now it's bringing the uh, the yemenis the southern arabs all into this one Arab peoples, which, of course, begins with the Tower of Babel. And so this is taking uh, the lineage back and weaving it in with the scriptures in a way that it certainly hadn't been before. And so interestingly, um, Ibn Abbas, who is one of the writers who is uh, propounding this idea, who is describing it, uh, he describes the Arab prophets, and then he mentions, quote, the Persians had no prophets, right? So it's very uh, particular to say he's talking about the, the prophetic lineage of the Arabs and making a point saying, say, oh, by the way, the Persians, who is basically the audience for all of this stuff, uh, you guys didn't have any prophets. And a key Qur'anic verse that is interpreted in this light, uh, this is from the Qur'an, uh, Surah 9, verse 128, and in this verse God says, quote, I have sent a messenger from among yourselves, end quote. Now th- the interpretation of this verse develops over these generations that we're discussing here. The earliest interpreters saw this as meaning specifically the people of Mecca, who we know were pagans. I mean, they were famous pagans, in fact, we said the Kaaba had 360 idols in it, Uh, they made a big business off this idol worship, and they opposed the Prophet Muhammad uh, very strongly at first. And so this makes sense. God is saying to them, hey, I have sent a messenger from amongst yourselves, not a foreigner, he's one of yours. Um, and this fits in the context of this surah. The surrounding verses talk about people who harden their hearts and don't accept the, the prophecy that's sent to them. Okay, so that, that makes perfect sense. But by the time we get to the second, third centuries of Islam, this word yourselves is being interpreted to mean the Arabs as an indication that God recognized a pure distinct Arab nation. Now it doesn't say that, it just says amongst yourselves, but you can see how this is being expanded. Meaning that by the second century, there was a concept of an Arab identity out there that you could refer to. So these are some interesting developments in interpretation, and they go along with a very interesting development And that is the rewriting of the history of pagan Arabia. Now, we know that the polytheism of the Arabs is well-attested. It's well-attested in the Quran and is certainly supported by archaeology. I mean, we've talked about how the Kaaba had 360 different idols in it. And this all sounded good when the Bedouin were the ones being preached to. In the early years of Quranic revelation, Uh, we have the prophet Muhammad bringing the message of monotheism to a pagan people, and they're fighting him, they're trying to kill him. Okay, so this made sense, uh, this contrast of monotheism in the local pagan worship. But by the time we get to the Abbasid period, uh, the pagan ancestry of the Arabs was a bit of an embarrassment because they're no longer the, the target of the message. Uh, you know, they're being the garrison forces. They're being the, in some cases, the ruling government in far-off places like Spain. Okay, so the idea of ancient Arab monotheism begins to appear in histories, and it, it really seems to be an anachronism. Now, we do know that there were scattered Jewish and Christian populations in the Arabian Peninsula before Islam. This is particularly after the Romans suppressed the Jewish rebellion, after they destroyed the Jewish temple. Um, I mean, they scattered the Jews all different ways, and they a lot of them uh, settled in the Arabian Peninsula. Of course, the population of Medina uh, was dominated by Jewish tribes. So that that's well attested to. We do know that there was monotheism definitely in the Arabian Peninsula. But this is not what the Abbasid historians are referring to. Instead, they begin to talk about the Hanifs. Now, the Hanif is a very distinct term which means those who follow the pure monotheism of Abraham. Okay. And Ishmael, who we discussed earlier, becomes the key link in this chain. So Abraham is called out. He becomes the first real monotheist. He's going to become the, the uh, progenitor of the, the Jewish people. Um, but he is said to have established pure monotheistic religion in the Arabian Peninsula. He builds the Kaaba, and Ishmael becomes the prophet there in Mecca. And so this Hanifiya, as it's called, is distinguished from Judaism. It is distinguished from what's going to develop into Christianity, meaning it's, it's the correct, pure monotheism. And this becomes, in the Abbasid histories, the core of the Arab people. And so we go from this image of the Bedouin being mostly pagans, whom we have to convert to the Arabs being, by nature, Hanifs. They're generally pure monotheists, with the pagans being like a fringe group. Um, and as even said, they, they emerge just a few years before Muhammad came along, and they're just like a deviation. And so the message of the Quran is seen not so much as bringing monotheism to a pagan land where it didn't exist, But correcting what was a temporary misstep. Like a a few people have gone astray and started worshiping these idols. Now, when you think about it, this does make a lot of sense because if we read the Old Testament, I mean, this is what the Jewish prophets are doing constantly, right? I mean, the Jewish people just over and over again, start worshiping these pagan idols that they get from the local people, and another prophet and another prophet after another has to come correct them. So it kind of ties into the same uh, sort of narrative. But it does seem to be a, a creation. Okay, we do know the words, there was some monotheism in the Arabian Peninsula, but the idea that the Arabs were these pure monotheists for centuries, this really doesn't uh, seem to have any evidence. And furthermore, as I said, the changing role of the Yemenis as they become more important in the political structure. And the Yemenis were separate because they always had a settled kingdom and they had a line of monarchs. They were not Bedouin uh, because the basically the geography of, of Yemen supports that. Uh, now the kings of Yemen are almost entirely seen to be Hanifs, to have been, you know, very straight-laced monotheists, and it's seen that only a few of them turned to paganism as a very late and very temporary uh, deviation, okay? So you can see this narrative is now being changed to say that, well, you know, the Arabs were always really close to God, as opposed to you Persians, you know who you you were completely out of it well it's easy to understand the tensions that produced this glorification of the Arab past, right? Um, As as we've mentioned in previous episodes, the Abbasid state particularly borrowed heavily from Persian culture. Uh, Their power base was in Khorasan, which is in in eastern Iran, and the Persians had a well-developed infrastructure. I mean, they had had a settled kingdom, which is something that Bedouin Arabia just didn't have. And so, as Islam becomes a worldwide empire, I mean, they borrow very heavily in in all regards from the Persians. And in fact, this is one of the critiques of the Abbasids constantly, is that they are two Persians. Uh, But the Arabs still hold most of the key leadership positions. And so, particularly in the second century of Islam, which is really the the Abbasid century, the descendants of the original conquerors, those muhajirun, those who moved from the Arabian Peninsula, they even get paid a government allowance just for being who they are. And so there's a very real tension that's developing here between the decadent, luxury city dwellers, which is what Persian culture represents, and the honest, simple desert folk. Now, you don't have to look far to find that same tension being reproduced in pretty much any civilization you want to mention any civilization that has city folk and country folk has this distinction right and we can look no further than america today right look at the way that they are depicted how many politicians do we see trying to pass themselves off as you know good old cowboys or farmers even if they're really you know rich ivy league city folk i mean the first president bush is a perfect example of this. I mean, he's born in Massachusetts. He's an absolute uh, Connecticut, Yale, um, New Englander, um, passing himself off as a cowboy. And if you remember when he ran against Ross Perot, this is going ways back, but Ross Perot, who was actually from uh, Dallas used to call him out as being a, a fake cowboy. But it's the idea that you wanted to talk about um, the, the purity of the rural population, of being an honest, hardworking farmer or a cowboy versus, um, you know, being a big city liberal. Well, we got the same thing going on in the Abbasid Empire. And so on the one hand, of course, people want the luxury of palace life right? The wine parties, the singing girls, the extravagant wealth, the comforts, right? But also, you know, that's a bit corrupt, decadent, so we admire the pure, tough Bedouin, and particularly uh, when a society is based on religion, this idea of conservatism comes in, and who represents the conservatives? It's, of course, the, um, the rural folk. So, This is sort of a tension you have, and you want to be able to try and navigate this. So yes, I am a fabulously wealthy Baghdad merchant who lives in a palace, but really at heart, I'm a good old desert boy. Why? Because my origins are, you know, out there with the Bedouin, whether they really are or are not. So we can look at uh, the way the histories begin to make this distinction. And one of the early Abbasid uh, historians is a man named Ibn Habib, and he was one of the first to write extensively about the morals and values of the Bedouin. Uh, And this is sort of a new thing, because we can go back um, just a century or so later when we're talking about the Arab, the nomads, as this threat. Remember, they were based on the locusts. They were the pests of the desert. Now he's writing about the the morals of the the Bedouin, and he finds that they are basically the same as Islamic values, right? Hospitality, honor, courage, bravery. And he cites some pretty dubious hadiths, but he cites hadiths of the prophet that, that praise uh, pre-Islamic tribal leaders. And even the prophet is at one point said to tell people to appoint pre-Islamic tribal leaders as leaders of the Muslim community, continue to use the same lineage for those leaders because of their character. And again, I say these are pretty dubious hadiths. But now what's happening is uh, we're finding the values of the pre-Islamic, quote, Arabs as being a model for our behavior. So yeah, they they deviated, they got into some paganism, but... I mean, they really had the the correct values. And this is stressed even to this day. Even if you go to very rich Arab states like the United Arab Emirates, uh, rich people pay money to go out and live in, you know, quote, Bedouin camps that are made specifically for them so they get back to these basic values. So we find that even the bad stuff that was attacked previously, like female infanticide, uh, the Bedouin used to bury the, the female babies in the sand. Well, okay, this is still seen as bad, but now it's being downplayed as deviations. You know, some people did this, but they were bad, and this, they were uh, violating Bedouin values, not upholding them. Okay, so, I mean, history is always being rewritten, right? And history is always being written by the people who hold the power, and that's what we're seeing here. As assimilation is occurring, um, your link to your past is getting more and more tenuous, and your past becomes more and more glorious. Well, a major turning point in the conception of the Arab identity is the Abbasid Civil War, which occurs between the sons of Harun al-Rashid. And this starts in 855, so we're about 200 years after the prophet. And this civil war, of course, wreaks uh, tremendous destruction on the caliphate. It has huge implications. But it also has implications on the writing of history. Now, we know, with the benefit of hindsight, that the winner ends up being al-Ma'mun. Who is the younger son, and he goes on to be probably the most powerful and influential of all caliphs. In fact, we have an episode about him in this podcast called "Quote the Great Caliph," and I think it's appropriate. He probably was, but at the time, El mamun was the younger and the weaker son. And initially, his brother Al-Amin had the upper hand, and in fact, um, drives Al-Ma'mun out into eastern Persia and almost gets rid of him. Now, the way the balance of power broke down is the Arab tribes and the Arab political elite supported Al-Amin, who appeared to be the winner. Uh, we know that Al-Ma'mun basically won with the support of the Khorasanis the eastern Iranians, and after his victory, they would bring uh, tremendous power. They would be uh, really a power base in Baghdad, and of course, al Mahmoud made the the fateful decision to bring in the Turkish mercenaries, and we have talked about this before as a change that would permanently shift the balance of power in the Middle East, and I mean, eventually, the Turks are going to end up running things. Uh, but this shifts the balance of power, and there's also a big purge. So the the Arab elites, who basically backed the wrong side in this war, which, you know, generally has negative implications if you do that, uh, they end up on the outs. Okay, And so, ironically, um, of course, this is going to be a big blow to the power of the Arab elites, and it Of course, it's going to hurt them, but, you know, one of the ways that identity develops is in persecution. People really strengthen their identities when they're on the outs, and they feel that other people are out to get them. And now, so that's kind of what happens here. Uh, The Arab elites, they're, they're knocked from power, and, I mean, they essentially end up, you know, being pursued to some extent by these outside Turkish mercenaries, but this only strengthens their idea of being pure and these outsiders, um, you know, being foreigners. And, of course, the, the Turkish mercenaries become notorious for basically raising hell in Baghdad when they're in there, I mean, they're constantly fighting with the local population, which, again, separates the us versus them. Now, this is not the only change that the Civil War brings. Uh, Basically, in this time period, the Arabian Peninsula slips out of central control for a lot of reasons. The Civil War is one of them. There was already a lot of uh, rebel groups going on there, uh, especially uh, Shiite rebels, because, I mean, if you're driven out of the heartland, out of Iraq or Syria, uh, where are you going to flee to? Well, you flee to the desert. That's a place that's hard to catch you. And so uh, by this time, with the, the center of the Abbasid empire in turmoil, in al-Mamun's trying to reestablish order in the capital, uh, Arabia is slipping back um, into, into chaos. Additionally, the, the Abbasids, as one of their points of legitimacy, had spent tremendous amounts of money to maintain the Hajj route, from Iraq to Mecca. And, of course, being the protector of the Hajj is one of the duties of the Khalif. This is how you earn your your cred uh, by doing this. And they spent extensively to take what was, I mean, by nature a a really harsh, tough desert journey and make it pretty safe and comfortable. I mean, they built this, what's basically a highway, uh, which was called Zubaydah's Route, uh, that went from Iraq to... um, to Mecca. Well, with Baghdad in ruins, in civil war in Iraq, the Hajj route becomes neglected, and it basically will remain that way for, for generations. Uh, and the caliphs, uh, actually, they stop going to Mecca themselves. And with this weakness, this leads to a major uh, Shiite uprising in Central Arabia that, that will last, I mean, it'll last for a long time, right up to the Fatimid period, and this basically makes Central Arabia off-limits. Now, right offhand, you would think this would sort of hurt the Arab identity. But it has a strange effect. And, you know, people, people do strange things with the political conditions that they have. So definitely in the center of the empire, uh, the power of the Arabs has gone down and persianism if we can call that is going to rise this love of persian culture but of course identity is an us versus them thing so if the them of of persia is being strengthened well then the remaining arabs are going to strengthen their arab identity so it's about this time we're talking about the mid-1800s that the concept of the ideal bedouin develops now a lot of factors are involved in this, um, you know, one factor is linguistic, for example. Uh, the grammarians have about this time just finished codifying the rules of the Arabic language, which of course are essential for studying the Quran. Now it's a very peculiar uh, linguistic situation here because the text of the Quran is the basis for the Arabic language as we know it. I mean, every Grammar rule in Arabic has to go back in mesh with the Quran, because, of course, if the Quran is revealed word for word, we know God is not going to make a grammar mistake, so the way God reveals it is the correct way it should be spoken. But actually figuring out grammar rules from a text, a semi-poetic text, can be pretty difficult. So what we do know is that the language of the Quran is the dialect of Mecca which was one of many, many different dialects of the pre-Islamic period. But this is going to be fixed as the correct Islamic dialect. So the earliest grammarians, and of course the, the famous one who's, I mean studied even to this day is a Sabahwe, the, the pioneer. Um, he is going to write about the language of Mecca, in as much detail as he can. Now, when he does this, and and this is in the first century of Islam, he tends to distinguish Bedouin language as different from Meccan language, which it, I mean, most definitely was. But by the time we get to the 800s, now access to Arabia is cut off, uh, the scholars of Baghdad are beginning to imagine a uniform Arabic language with the Bedouin as the perfect speakers. In the key figure in here is El Al-Jahiz, who we did an episode about way back, but he's known as the master of Arabic prose. And so he definitely felt he was the expert in speaking Arabic. And he was not a native, I mean, he, he is a native speaker, but his, his origins were probably African. Uh, so he's coming to this uh, from outside. And he felt that people in Baghdad were butchering the language and they were not getting it correct. So for him, the pure Arabic of the Bedouin was the correct Arabic. Now, interestingly, uh, and this is a point Dr. Webb makes, which I I think is, uh, you know, very insightful, the fact that people couldn't actually travel to Arabia and couldn't actually go hear Bedouin Arabic for themselves gave al-Jahaz and his contemporaries an advantage. If that was the perfect Arabic, you had to rely on him. You had to rely on an expert like him to tell you how it was spoken. And he actually comes out and says this, uh, you know, since since you can't go to Central Arabia, just listen to me. I know how the correct Arabic is spoken. Okay, now al-Jahaz develops the idea that Bedouin Arabic is pure because it was uncorrupted. Now he's sort of reasoning backwards from what we have in the Quran, right? The Quran is said to be revealed in Arabi, perfect clear language. This is seen as in general the language of Central Arabia of Mecca. It has to be perfect because God gave it to the people, right? Now the more that you have contact with speakers of foreign languages, and he uses that word ajam, the non-Arabs, which really becomes synonymous with Persians, it's going to corrupt your speech. And so what we see here is really for the first time that geography becomes the important thing. Now, of course, they were connected. Right, Having a lineage back to Arabia meant you were closer in relation to the Prophet, and so that was a good thing. But it was the lineage that was important, and the geography just happened to support that. Now, for al jahiz it becomes the opposite. The closer you are to the central of the Arabian Peninsula, the closer you are to the desert, the better. Because that means you have that original Arabic... Speech that was given to God that was preserved by these pure monotheists through all these centuries, and it has the least corruption um, from foreign, particularly Persian and Byzantine influences. So now geography is important, and this fits well with Al-Jahiz, whose uh, you know his authority is not on his lineage because he's he's from Africa, but it's based on his knowledge of this language. Okay, so this is one thing um, that's happening at this time. At the same time, this is when Bedouin values are being idealized. Uh, We talked about Ibn Habib, but Bedouin values are being said as the opposite of the wimpy, effeminate Persians, and that's the way that they're being portrayed, because the Bedouin Uh, Has honor, the Bedouin has loyalty, courage, the Bedouin fights, Uh, the Bedouin can survive on their own out in the desert, and the the Persians are just these wimpy city folks. Okay, so at the same time, um, this is going on, the idealization of Bedouin Arabic and Bedouin values, and you're able to idealize them because. We don't have any contact with those people. They are now cut off from us geographically, and they're cut off from us temporally, meaning the ideal Bedouin lived 300 years ago. Now they've all become corrupted. Okay. And so people like al-Jahiz are able to use this to say, yeah, th- this, these are the ideal people, these Bedouin, but y- you can never know them because you can't physically go there, you can't go back in time, but me, I'm the scholar. I know all about them, so you trust me. And they're actually making this case. He and a a number of his contemporaries are making this case for why they are the experts. Okay, so this this is one development that is creating this idea of the idealized Bedouin. Now, Of course, though, things change over time, and particularly language changes over time. Uh, We are talking now about people who are 200, 300 years after the prophet. Now, just think how much English has changed in 200 years, right? You read something from the 1700s, and it's hard to even understand it, okay? So, it works out great for al-Jahid, because by the time he's writing pure Arabic quote, even if it was real, even if at the time of the Quranic revelation, there was this pure Arabic spoken by the Bedouin, which was perfect, it's now a thing of the past. It's been corrupted by all this contact, particularly with Persians, they're so bad, but everybody else. And so it's a lost ideal, just like the, the, the life of the Bedouin is a lost ideal. Just like people today talking about the life of the cowboy, right? They're, they're talking about something that is gone. You know, They talk about the past when, you know, the cowboy rode the range, which is, you know, a very idealized and fictionalized uh, identity. But it, it always has to be something that's past, because otherwise people could go out there and study it and find out what it's really like. So we have all this coming together. The pure Arabic, the noble Bedouin, the uncorrupted Hanif monotheism, which is really better than the, the Jewish monotheism and the Christian monotheism, and it all comes together in these Bedouin Arabs um, whom are geographically and temporarily separated from us. You, you can't actually touch them, but you can have a lineage back to them. You can study them, and that's where this credibility Um, develops. And so we developed this idealized idea uh, of the Arab, and al-Jahiz has has to be given tremendous credit for making it something strictly about the Arabian Peninsula. Now, I mean, he even talks about it coming from from the soil of the desert and the desert air, right? It's so pure. And so now, um, if you can trace your lineage back to the Arabian Peninsula, anywhere. I mean, it just gives you this superiority. And this is being used, it's being stressed by people at a time, uh, and it's very important to consider when their actual power is waning. right? The, the real Arabs have lost their power. The Persians are really taking over, particularly after al-Mamun. Persians, Turks are becoming the actual power holders, and... Um, stressing this Arab identity is more like a longing for the past, uh, right? It's like, you know, one of these British shows. Uh, I, mean, I think of Midsummer Murders, which is a show I absolutely love on British television, Right, but every episode of Midsummer Murders has someone who has this noble lineage, who has this country estate that was owned by their ancestor, the Earl of, of some place, and now they're flat broke, of course, because they've been pushed out by um, new money, uh, but there's always this idea of their pride and, you know, you know my ancestors have owned this estate since the 1600s and therefore I'm culturally superior Uh, even if economically and politically, I have absolutely no power. So this is the development of our idealized Arab identity, our Arab ethnicity, and it becomes very important in the Islamic empire. But this is not going to go unchallenged. Like we said, if there is an us, then there has to be a them, and the them movements become very proud as well. Uh, While this is going on, we have other peoples who have very proud heritage. Uh, Egyptians, Greeks, Syrians, uh, particularly Persians, Indians, who have a proud heritage of their own, and they are asserting it at the same time. And that's going to be our subject in the next episode. Sort of the counter to this, what is known as the Ashubia movement, which is basically the ethnic pride by non-Arabs, and these two things are definitely going on at the same time, and they are playing off each other. So, I hope you will join us for that episode. We'll see the other side of this coin. So, for now, thank you very much for your kind attention. Uh, thank you for your kind ratings. Please, if you haven't, check out our Facebook page, where we will continue to post things that don't make it into these actual podcasts, but some other interesting information. We definitely appreciate your likes and your comments. And so we hope to see you again for our next episode. Shukran Jazilin wa Salama. <laughs>